Hello, this is Helga Edwards, and I'm here with my husband Bob. Today we will be reading Genesis chapter 24 from the New English Translation of the Bible, beginning at verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. Abraham said to his servant, the senior one in his household, who was in charge of everything he had, Put your hand under my thigh, so that I might make you solemnly promise by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. You must not acquire a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living. You must go instead to my country and to my relatives to find a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, What if the woman is not willing to come back with me to this land? Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Be careful never to take my son back there, Abraham told him. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and the land of my relatives, promised me with a solemn oath, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you may find a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to come back with you, you will be free from this oath of mine, but you must not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and gave him his solemn promise he would carry out his wishes. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed with all kinds of gifts from his master at his disposal. He journeyed to the region of Aram, Naharim, and the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down by the well outside the city. It was evening, the time when the women would go out to draw water. He prayed, O Lord God of my master Abraham, guide me today. Be faithful to my master Abraham. Here I am, standing by the spring, and the daughters of the people who live in the town are coming out to draw water. I will say to a young woman, Please lower your jar so I may drink. May the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac reply, Drink, and I'll give your camels water too. In this way I will know that you have been faithful to my master. Before he had finished praying, there came Rebekah with her water jug on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah. Milcah was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. Now the young woman was very beautiful. She was a virgin. No man had ever had sexual relations with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jug, and came back up. Abraham's servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a sip of water from your jug. Drink, my lord, she replied, and quickly lowering her jug to her hands, she gave him a drink. When she had done so, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have drunk as much as they want. She quickly emptied her jug into the watering trough and ran back to the well to draw more water, until she had drawn enough for all his camels. Silently the man watched her with interest to determine if the Lord had made his journey successful or not. After the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels and gave them to her. Whose daughter are you? he asked. Tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? 
She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, who Milcah bore to Nahor. We have plenty of straw and feed, she added, and room for you to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his faithful love for my master. The Lord has led me to the house of my master's relatives. The young woman ran and told her mother's household all about these things. Now Rebekah had a brother named Laban. Laban rushed out to meet the man at the spring. When he saw the bracelets on his sister's wrists and the nose ring and heard his sister Rebekah say, This is what the man said to me, he went out to meet the man. There he was, standing by the camels near the spring. Laban said to him, Come, you who are blessed by the Lord. Why are you standing out here when I have prepared the house and a place for the camels? So Abraham's servant went to the house and unloaded the camels. Straw and feed were given to the camels, and water was provided so that he and the men who were with him could wash their feet. When food was served, he said, I will not eat until I have said what I want to say. Tell us, Laban said. I am the servant of Abraham, he began. The Lord has richly blessed my master, and he has become very wealthy. The Lord has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. My master's wife Sarah bore a son to him when she was old, and my master has given him everything he owns. My master made me swear an oath. He said, You must not acquire a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but you must go to the family of my father and to my relatives to find a wife for my son. But I said to my master, What if the woman does not want to go with me? He answered, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you. He will make your journey a success, and you will find a wife for my son from among my relatives, from my father's family. You will be free from your oath if you go to my relatives, and they will not give her to you. Then you will be free from your oath. When I came to the spring today, I prayed, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if you have decided to make my journey successful, may events unfold as follows. Here I am, standing by the spring. When the young woman goes out to draw water, I'll say, Give me a little water to drink from your jug. Then she will reply to me, Drink, and I'll draw water for your camels too. May that woman be the one whom the Lord has chosen for my master's son. Before I finished praying in my heart, along came Rebecca, with her water jug on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water. So I said to her, Please give me a drink. She quickly lowered her jug from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I'll give your camels water too. So I drank, and she also gave the camels water. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She replied, The daughter of Bethuel, the son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore to Nahor. I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her wrists. Then I bowed down and worshipped the Lord. I praised the Lord the God of my master Abraham, who had led me on the right path to find the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will show faithful love to my master, tell me. But if not, tell me as well, so that I may go on my way.
Then Laban and Bethuel replied, This is the Lord's doing. Our wishes are of no concern. Rebekah stands here before you. Take her and go, so that she may become the wife of your master's son, just as the Lord has decided. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then he brought out gold, silver jewelry, and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave valuable gifts to her brother and to her mother. After this, he and the men who were with him ate a meal and stayed there overnight. When they got up in the morning, he said, Let me leave now so I can return to my master. But Rebekah's brother and her mother replied, Let the girl stay with us a few more days, perhaps ten, then she can go. But he said to them, Don't detain me. The Lord has granted me success on my journey. Let me leave now so I may return to my master. Then they said, We'll call the girl and find out what she wants to do. So they called Rebekah and asked her, Do you want to go with this man? She replied, I want to go. So they sent their sister Rebekah on her way, accompanied by her female attendant, with Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebekah with these words, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands. May your descendants possess the strongholds of their enemies. Then Rebekah and her female servants mounted the camels and rode away with the man. So Abraham's servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac came from Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to relax in the field in the early evening. Then he looked up and saw that there were camels approaching. Rebekah looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked Abraham's servant, Who is that man walking in the field towards us? That is my master, the servant replied. So she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac everything that had happened. Then Isaac brought Rebekah into his mother Sarah's tent. He took her as his wife and loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Here ends our reading of Genesis chapter 24. The story of how Isaac meets his future wife Rebekah is filled with references to ancient cultural customs. For example, Abraham's servant swears an oath by putting his hand under Abraham's thigh. Abraham's servant determines that Rebekah will be Isaac's future bride when she offers water to his camels. As a token of his interest in Rebekah to be Isaac's wife, the servant presents her with a nose ring. And when Rebekah sees her future husband at a distance, she covers her face with a veil. All of these events had a specific meaning in their immediate cultural context. According to a prominent Jewish Bible commentator of the Middle Ages, Abin Ezra, placing a hand under the thigh, quote, was the custom in those days, as if he was saying, here my hand is under your authority to fulfill your wishes, end of quote. And that's taken from Yeshiva, the Torah World Gateway website. When Rebekah offered water to the camels, Abraham's servant saw this as an answer to his prayer, for guidance in choosing a bride for his master's son. The nose ring was a customary oriental betrothal gift. And finally, according to the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges, it was an ancient oriental custom 
for women to veil their faces in the presence of a future husband. Historians offer a number of explanations for the ancient practice of veiling, ranging from the ancient superstition of hiding the bride's beauty, lest evil spirits become jealous of her and seek to make her unhappy in her marriage, to symbolizing the bride's chastity before marriage, to concealing a bride's features which were viewed as irrelevant in the case of an arranged marriage, to encouraging the bride and groom to focus on the importance of inward beauty which does not fade with time. Placing a hand under the thigh to swear an oath, giving a nose ring as a betrothal present, these actions are not generally taken by followers of Jesus Christ to be God's will for all humanity for all time. Unfortunately, however, a number of theologians have inferred general commands for all women, for all time, from Rebecca's act of veiling herself. In contrast to ancient cultural meanings already cited, these theologians focus on female subjection. For example, the Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible Commentary claims, the veil is an essential part of female dress. In country places, it is often thrown aside, but on the appearance of a stranger, it is drawn over the face as to conceal all but the eyes. In a bride, it was a token of her reverence and subjection to her husband. Another commentary, written by a theologian named John Gill, claims that the veil was a sign of modesty and subjection. Gill based this conclusion on Roman culture, Arabian culture, and the third-century commentary work of a man named Tertullian. Tertullian accused unveiled women of prostituting themselves, and he blamed female beauty for the fall of rebellious angels from heaven. Here are those comments from his work entitled On the Veiling of Virgins. Quote, Arabia's heathen females will be your judges, who cover not only the head, but the face also so entirely that they are content with one eye free to enjoy rather half the light than to prostitute the entire face. So perilous a face, then, ought to be shaded, which has cast stumbling stones even so far as heaven." Unquote. Commentaries like those of Jameson, Fawcett, Brown, and Gill that claim the veil was worn by all women in public as a universal symbol of subjection are mistaken. An article found at Bible History Online explains, quote, Anciently, the veil was only exceptionally used for ornament, or by women betrothed in meeting their future husbands, and at weddings. Ordinarily, women among the Jews, Egyptians, and Assyrians appeared in public with faces exposed, unquote. In the Bible, when Rebecca met Abraham's servant in Genesis 24:16, for example, her face was not covered. She only used a veil when she was about to meet her future husband. Similarly, in Genesis 12:14, the Egyptians were able to see that Abram's wife Sarai was very beautiful. In 1 Samuel 1:12, a priest named Eli was able to observe a woman's mouth as she prayed. That woman was Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel. Tertullian's view of women was overtly misogynistic. The Bible never 
blames women for the sins of fallen angels. Even the apocryphal book of Enoch that Tertullian seems to be referencing firmly holds fallen angels responsible for their sins, not women. Additionally, Tertullian appeals not to the Bible, but to Arabian culture as the authority for his belief. It is sadly the case that some churches continue to teach a universal doctrine of female subjection to male authority in both the church and the home. Some churches also continue to insist that women cover their heads in public. Others even hand out veils for women to wear in church. Regarding the cultural customs described in Genesis chapter 24, if placing hands under thighs and giving nose rings did not become confused with God's will for all human beings for all time, why has the ancient custom of veiling a bride been used as an enduring symbol of female modesty and subjection? Answering that question requires us to take a close look at a significant theological influence in the Latin church of the 4th century AD. That influence came from a Roman bishop named Augustine of Hippo. His views are summarized in our book entitled, Let My People Go, A Call to End the Oppression of Women in the Church, Revised and Expanded, which reads, In his eighth book of confessions, St. Augustine reveals that he had a problem. He was tormented by his past habits, which were mostly sexual in nature. A close look at Augustine's thoughts on the subject of sexuality reveals just how troubled he really was. He believed that in order for sex to be pure in the eyes of God, it must not be tainted by feelings of desire or attraction. He believed, for example, that before sin entered the world, quote, Adam would have sown his seed in Eve without any experience of lust or concupiscence as a rational act fully under control of his mind, as a farmer sows his seed in a field." Unquote. His beliefs on this issue were so extreme that he considered a man's erection to be sinful because it did not take place under his conscious control. It is not difficult to imagine why sex was such a struggle for Augustine. When he experienced any feelings of sexual attraction, he concluded, wrongly, that he had already committed a sin. And to whom did he attribute blame for his alleged sinfulness? It is women who were seen as stimulating and hence causing the sinful concupiscence in the male. Augustine's solution to his problem was simple. Women needed to be more strictly controlled by men. Thus the woman, but not the man, should veil herself to prevent her from causing this sinful response in the male. Quotations from St. Augustine are taken from the book entitled Feminist Interpretations of Augustine, edited by Judith Chelius Stark. St. Augustine's views on the veiling of women were so extreme that in his 245th letter, he stated that wives should not uncover their hair even in the presence of their husbands. These views have had a tremendous impact on church theology and practice, but they are anything but biblical. Throughout both Old and New Testaments, sexual intimacy is celebrated in the context of marital love and fidelity. 
In Proverbs 5, 18 to 19, for example, we read, May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful fawn, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you be captivated by her love forever. In Hebrews 13, 4, we read, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. St. Augustine's views on sexuality did not come from the Bible. They grew out of personal shame that he projected onto women whom he then sought to control. His views were reinforced by cultural norms of Greek philosophy and Roman law that were deeply prejudiced against women. We explore these influences in greater depth in our book entitled The Equality Workbook, Freedom in Christ from the Oppression of Patriarchy. Fallen human culture and a prominent theologian's sexual shame have led to the non-biblical belief that women, all women, must conceal their physical appearance so that men will not commit sexual sin. Influenced by this theological tradition, many commentaries on the New Testament even believe that the Apostle Paul embraced the same viewpoint as St. Augustine. They point to Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul discusses the covering of women's hair in public worship. What they do not realize is that Paul was first quoting and then correcting an oppressive oral tradition taught by rabbinical Judaism. The oral tradition of Paul's day taught that a woman should be ashamed to reveal her hair in public. Some men in the church of Corinth were evidently attempting to impose this tradition onto Gentile women in the early Christian church. Paul responds by telling these men that a woman's hair is not her shame, rather it is her glory. We read that in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 16. Writing a second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul reminds them, quote, We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Unquote. And that's found in 2 Corinthians 3.18. In the presence of God, no one need veil their face, neither men nor women. Oppressive cultural traditions do not help us to become more godly. That work is accomplished by the Holy Spirit, who works in our hearts to transform us from the inside out. The church today has an important decision to make. Will we follow the example of fallen human culture and oral traditions that oppress women and do not help us to become more Christ-like? Or will we surrender ourselves completely to God? trusting in the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and minds so that we will treat one another with love and respect. Jesus warned the religious leaders of his day, quote, you have let go the commandments of God and are holding on to human traditions, unquote. We find that in Mark chapter 7, verse 8. May God help us not to make the same mistake.